Ephesians chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to thank you for your prayers this last week. I know last Sunday we mentioned that the pastoral staff and um, a few others were going to be at the Feed My Sheep conference in Atlanta, and I spoke there, and uh, actually Nikki spoke during the luncheon for the ladies as well. And uh, the Lord was really gracious. We had a good conference. I think uh, the Lord was with me and helped me as I spoke, and uh, I believe through uh, the messages of the men there, a number of pastors were really encouraged and helped, and so really appreciate your prayers. Uh, also grateful that Don uh, prayed this morning for the uh, events that are taking place at Asbury. It seems to be a genuine revival that is taking place there, and uh, doesn't seem to be manufactured, but seems to be a genuine work of the Lord, and so we praise God for that, and uh, we want to continue to pray that the Lord would protect and nurture what's taking place there. And one of the things that we can pray is that God in His grace, uh, the work that is being done there might spread to local churches uh, and local churches across our country because uh, we know that we desperately need uh, the Lord's fresh awakening and revival. And so we can pray for that. Well, this morning we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7. We've been in a series in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And uh, we finished chapter 6. And this morning we will turn our attention to Romans chapter 7. And so I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 and read through to verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word and for the great hope that you have given us in the gospel. And Lord, we thank you for how Paul in these chapters lays out for us this great hope that you have granted to us in Christ and the reality that in Christ we can know true victory over sin and progress in our Christian lives. Lord, we pray that as we consider these truths this morning that you would give us understanding and insight, wisdom. And Lord, we pray that we would know this grace and this power in our own lives. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I made the point from Romans chapter 6 that God has written His moral DNA into the universe that He created, and that it's fixed, it's certain. And this moral fixedness in the universe is actually a serious problem for atheists and agnostics. agnostics, In the end, they don't know how to account for it. Why is it that certain 
actions and moral choices lead to certain consequences, whether good or bad. You see, we cannot escape the moral code of the universe. In fact, this is where C.S. Lewis begins in his classic entitled Mere Christianity. The first section of the book, which is written largely to skeptics, the first section of the book is entitled Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. And Lewis opens his book by observing, quote, Everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like this, How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. End of quote. You see, what Lewis is pointing to there is that in each of those scenarios, the individuals are appealing to an assumed standard of right and wrong. Lewis himself actually lived during the events of World War II, and Lewis reflects on the atrocities committed by Hitler, and he asks this question, quote, what was the sense in saying the enemy were wrong unless right is a real thing? which the Nazis at bottom knew and ought to have practiced. If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair." End of quote. And then finally, Lewis makes this very practical observation. Quote, But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining. It's not fair. End of quote. And isn't that so true? Even those who claim, well, there's no right and wrong. When they get into the real nitty-gritty of life, they instinctively appeal to a right and to a wrong. And the reason is, is because God has created us all with a sense of right and wrong. Instinctively, we know that there is a moral law, a moral code that governs the universe. Now, the Bible teaches us that apart from divine revelation, which we have in the Scriptures, We don't know how to properly relate to this moral law, to this moral code. Instinctively, we know it's there. We appeal to it all the time. But in our fallen nature, we don't know how properly to relate to it. If we're irreligious, we will bristle against it. We will resent it. We will try to negotiate our lives around it. If we're religious, we'll acknowledge it. We'll try to live up to it. But unfortunately, that only leads to frustration and insecurity because we will find that we are in the end unable to keep the law that we so revere. It's in the Bible that we learn that the purpose of the gospel is not to enslave us to the law, this law that we all know exists, but rather the purpose of the gospel is to deliver us from the law. 
In fact, Paul teaches us in our text this morning that the only way we can properly relate to the law is if we die to it. If we die to the law. This is what we were reading about this morning in Galatians chapter 3 from the scripture reading. We must die to the law as a hope of salvation. We must realize that we cannot uphold the perfect standard of the law. So instead, we trust in Jesus who died for our transgressions against the law on the cross and paid the penalty that we deserve of the law, the penalty of the law. He paid it on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. But what Paul is going to teach us this morning in Romans chapter 7 is that not only do we need to die to the law as a hope of salvation, we must die to the law as a hope for sanctification. And that's what we've been considering in Romans 6 through 8, right? Sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in righteousness. We could say it this way, making progress in morality. And what Paul teaches us in the text this morning is that it's the gospel that declares this counterintuitive truth that we can only live out the morals and the ethics and the character of the law if we die to the law. It's only if we die to the law that paradoxically we will discover the grace and the power to increasingly live a life that reflects the character of the law. So this is Paul's concern in Romans chapter 7. Paul began to address this matter actually back in Romans chapter 6 verse 15. You can look there in chapter 6 verse 15 and Paul raises this question. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And then you see his immediate answer there, by no means. And then he goes on in the rest of chapter 6 to explain to us that law and grace represent two different errors in salvation history. That the error of the law was characterized by the reign of sin. And we talked about this at some length, but the error of the law was characterized by the reign of sin. And this was illustrated through the life and the rebellion of the nation of Israel. But now, in Christ, we live in the error of grace And through Christ, we've been delivered from the bondage and the slavery of sin and become slaves of God. We've been delivered by the power of the gospel to live a life of righteousness and obedience, which results in sanctification and eternal life. So now in Romans 7, Paul continues to address this matter. He continues to address this matter of how the Christian, who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus, now relates to the law. So we're going to turn this morning to our text, and I want us to see what Paul has to teach us here in these first six verses of chapter 7 of how the Christian is to relate to the law. We'll consider our passage in three parts, okay? So this is our outline. First, we will see that Paul presents us with a principle. So first, a principle. Secondly, an illustration. And then third, the main point. So a principle an illustration, and then the main point. So look there in verse 1 of chapter 7, and we see, first of all, a principle. Paul writes there, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, in verse 1, Paul, when he speaks of the law here, he may be speaking of the law generally, even be speaking of civil law, 
or he may be speaking of the law of Moses in particular. But either way, Paul is appealing to a universal truth that is accepted by all. A law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And that word binding there is actually kuriuo in the original language. It's closely related to the Greek word kurios, which we translate as lord or master. And so the idea here is, when he says that the the law is binding, it could be that word binding could be translated to exercise authority or to have control over, to rule over, to master, to dominate. So notice how some other translations translate chapter 7 verse 1. The New American Standard translates it, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. Or the New King James Version says, the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Or the New International Version says, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So this is the principle that Paul is trying to establish. The law is binding, it has jurisdiction, it has dominion, it has authority over someone only as long as they live. Now Paul goes on, this is our second point, to illustrate this truth, an illustration. Look there in verses 2 to 3. He goes on to write, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So this law of marriage here that Paul appeals to in verses 2 and 3, it illustrates Paul's point or principle in verse 1. He says, if you have a married woman, she's married to this man, she is bound by the law of marriage to be faithful to her husband. So if she is married and she lives with another man... She is an adulteress. But, Paul says, if her husband dies, then his death releases her from that law, releases her from the law of marriage, and now she is free to give herself to another, to belong to another, to be married to another man. Now, we should just pause for a moment here. This somewhat of a sensitive subject that Paul is addressing here in verses 2 to 3 in terms of this illustration that he's using. And we should say that in particular, divorce itself is always a terribly difficult experience. And sometimes Christians will debate, actually, uh, what are the legitimate or biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. So, That is, in what situations or circumstances can someone in good conscience divorce their spouse? Or what are the situations and circumstances in which someone in good conscience could remarry after having been married previously? And there are any number of passages in Scripture that address these issues, and sometimes Christians will debate over what are the grounds upon which someone can biblically be divorced or remarried. But no one debates this point. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach, as well as natural law affirms, that if a person is married and their spouse passes away, 
then of course they are free from the law and the obligation of that marriage. And they are free, if they so desire, to marry another. So even the person who takes the most conservative position on marriage and divorce and remarriage would not debate this point. Death frees a spouse from their marital obligations. Death frees a spouse from the law of marriage. And this is the point that Paul intends to establish. When one dies, they are released from the jurisdiction, from the dominion, from the authority of the law. Now notice how Paul stresses this point repeatedly in our text. Verse 2, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law having died. So this is the principle, the illustration, and now we want to ask the question, well, how does this principle and this illustration apply to the Christian's relationship to the law? And that takes us to our third point, the main point, which we find in verses 4 through 6. Look there in chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So, here's the main point. I'm going to try to summarize verses 4 to 6 and give you the main point at what Paul is thrusting at here in terms of our relationship to the law. The main point is this. We died to the law so that we might belong to Christ and serve in the Spirit. That's what Paul says in verses 4 through 6. We died to the law so that we might belong to Christ and we might serve in the Spirit. Now let's break down Paul's main point and consider each part. The first part of this main point is we died to the law. Now this is very interesting because notice that Paul's application in verse 4 does not exactly follow from his illustration in verses 2 and 3. Now track this because you can get lost in this easily if you don't. So, So track this, okay? In the illustration, it is the husband who dies so that the wife is free to marry another. But in the application, the law, which is represented by the husband, does not die. Rather, it is we who are represented by the wife who die in order that we might marry another. Did you track that? Nod yes or no. I can say it again. (laughs) Okay, let me say it one more time. In the illustration, the husband dies so that the wife is free to remarry. But in the application, the law, which is represented by the husband, does not die. The husband doesn't die. 
Rather, the wife dies, who represents us, so that she might marry another. Do you see how it changes? So some protest and they say, well, therefore, Paul's illustration doesn't make any sense. I mean, if we are the ones dying, then how can we marry another? How can the wife die so that she marries another? Paul's illustration doesn't make any sense because according to his illustration, we're dead. Now, some have responded to this objection by suggesting that we should not press the analogy too far. And that's a point well taken. In fact, some people say that Paul's not even intending to draw a direct parallel between the husband and the law and the wife and us. Right? He's not, he's not trying to make that direct parallel, that direct connection. He's just appealing in the illustration to a general principle that death frees one from the law, and then he's applying that general principle to our relationship to the law. That's one way you can respond to this objection, and maybe that's true. But it seems to me that there is a much more natural solution. In the illustration, the husband dies so that the wife is free to remarry. And in the application, the law, which is represented by the husband, does not die, but rather we, who are represented by the wife, die in order that we might marry another. Now, how can we die and marry another? Notice the very next phrase in the verse. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that is through his death, through union with Christ, you died to the law, so that you may belong to another, here it is, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now who is that? That's Jesus, right? Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't remain dead. Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. Now, let me ask you this. What has been the whole point of Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7? Union with Christ. Through faith in Christ, we are united with Christ in his death so that we die, but we are also united with Christ, what? In his resurrection so that we live, so that we have life. And so if in Paul's illustration the wife represents the Christian, I see no problem with the wife dying and then marrying another. Because the wife doesn't just die. She's been raised to marry another. To marry Christ who himself has been raised from the dead. So notice who dies in this scenario. The law does not die. The nature of the law in that sense remains the same. It has not changed. Rather, the radical, distinctive, definite action that takes place happens in us, and it happens to us. It's not the law who dies. We die, and we are raised so that we might marry another. That's the first part of Paul's main point. We died to the law. The second part of Paul's main point is we died to the law so that we might belong to Christ. Look there in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, again, we have been united to Christ by faith. 
And we have been united to Christ by faith, not only in His death, but also in His resurrection. And this is a point that Paul makes over and over again in these verses. So if you go back to chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says there, "...we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death." In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or in chapter 6, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. So we died to the law so that now we, having been raised from the dead, might belong to Jesus, the one who himself was raised from the dead, who has conquered death once and for all and only knows life, eternal, everlasting life. And we, Paul says, are his. Now, this is significant because Paul says that previously we did not know life. Instead, we knew death. Look there in verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh. Now what does it mean when we were living in the flesh? This is when we were fallen. When we were unregenerate. When we were unbelieving. Unredeemed. While we were living in the flesh. Notice this. Our sinful passions aroused by the law. Were at work in our members. To bear fruit for death. Now we're going to return to this theme next week. Is it next week or the following week? Anyways, I can't remember when I'm preaching next. We're going to return to this theme next time we're in Romans chapter 7. But Paul says something shocking here in chapter 7 verse 5. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, apart from the law or in the absence of the law, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Rather, Paul says, by the law or through the law, our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, that's shocking, especially because Paul was a Jewish rabbi who knew the law backwards and forwards, who'd studied the law all his life. He was a Pharisee. And so we might expect Paul to say, if you want to grow in righteousness, if you want to make progress in your sanctification, if you want to know life, then you must place yourself under the law. You must be in the law. You must wedge yourself to the law. You must be a slave to the law. But Paul says the exact opposite. Instead, Paul says, it was through the law, it was by the law, that our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And again, we're going to explore this more next week, but what Paul is saying here is that the law leads to death. And this is the condition of every man and every woman outside of Christ. But for the Christian, we are united to Him who has been raised from the dead. And what is the result? Verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, dead things don't bear good fruit. The law couldn't bring life to our spiritually dead souls. But when through faith we were united to the resurrected living Christ, we bore fruit to God. Isn't this what Jesus says in John chapter 15 verse 5? I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much 
fruit. In other words, belonging results in bearing. If you belong to Christ, you will bear fruit to God. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit for God. And here, here's what Paul is getting at, and this is key. And Maybe you've gotten lost a little bit in the argument that Paul's making here, but this is what Paul is really getting at. This is the key. The key to living a vibrant, fruit-bearing Christian life is not in rules and commandments, but rather in a relationship with the living, resurrected Christ. And it's as we belong to Him, it's as we abide in Him, that we experience spiritual life and bear fruit to God. The law can't provide that. We know this law exists, as I was mentioning at the opening this morning. We know this moral code, this moral law exists, but it's limited. It can't provide what is being spoken of here, and therefore we must die to the... This is what it means to die to the law. It means to die to the false hope that the law can produce the righteousness of God in us. It cannot. Only Christ can. And He will if we look to Him in faith and abide in Him. The law can show you what is right and wrong. The law can convict you when you go the wrong way. The law can condemn you and show you that you don't measure up to its standard. But the law has no power to change you so that you love God, truly love Him, and want to live for His glory. Only Christ revealed in the gospel and embraced by faith can bring about that kind of change in your life. John Bunyan, the uh, old Puritan pastor many years ago, wrote a little poem to capture this truth. And as we're going through Romans chapter 7, I might quote this again because it's so helpful. But John Bunyan wrote this many years ago. <clears throat> quote, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Let me say that one more time. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You see, the law will come and say, run, run, but it gives you no ability to do so. It's only in the gospel, belonging to Christ, abiding in Christ, that in the power of the gospel, we're able to run and even fly and to make progress in our sanctification. So, Paul's main point, the first part is that we died to the law. The second part is that we died to the law so that we might belong to Christ. And the third part of Paul's main point is that we died to the law so that we might serve in the Spirit. Look there in verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or in the old way of the letter. Now, those words there at the beginning of verse 6, but now, they also appeared actually in chapter 6, uh, verse 22. So if you look back at chapter 6, verse 22, you see those words there, but now. And when we 
we're studying that passage, I said those two words are beautiful words because they indicate that something dramatic, something transformative and definitive has happened in our lives and will never be the same. And when Paul used those words in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, he was saying that prior to our union with Christ, we were slaves to sin, which resulted in shame and death. And then he says, but now we've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, which results in sanctification and eternal life. Now in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, he draws a similar contrast In chapter 7, verse 6, Paul says that prior to our union with Christ, our sinful passions conspired with the law and incited unrighteousness in us, which results in death. But now we have been released, right, from the law. We've died to the law so that we might serve God by the Spirit. Now what Paul is doing here in verse 6 is employing from the Old Testament, New Covenant language to describe our Christian conversion or our relationship to the law. So in the Old Testament, the prophets, as as the people of God lived under the law and sought to obey the law but failed again and again and again, as we see, they were um, exiled They experienced wilderness wanderings and so forth because of their disobedience to the law. And as they failed again and again and they realized that this law did not have the power to change them and transform them in the way that they desired, the prophets foretold of a day when God would establish a new covenant with His people. And this new covenant is described in several places in the Old Testament. One is in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34. The prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then the prophet Ezekiel, he also prophesies regarding this new covenant. The prophet Ezekiel says it this way. There's a number of places where Ezekiel speaks of this new covenant. But here in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, we read, this is the Lord speaking, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And this covenant is realized, it's it's obtained for us through the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, when Jesus has the Last Supper with His disciples and He takes the cup, He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm going to the cross to purchase all these promises for you so that they will be realized in you. 
The Apostle Paul speaks of this new covenant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 as well. In 2 Corinthians 3 verses 4 and 6, Paul says it this way. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, that is the law, kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, in the old era of the law, the people of God, they had access to the law, but it was external. Moses had chiseled it on stone. The prophets had written it on parchment. But the promise of the new covenant that Christ obtained for us at the cross is that the law would not just be written on stone or written on parchment, but it would be written on our hearts. And we would be given the Spirit of God by which we would be enabled to obey the Lord. So that, as Paul says here in Romans chapter 6, or chapter 7, verse 6, it, we might walk in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, in the old way of the law. So here's, here's this counterintuitive truth that I mentioned at the beginning of our message this morning. And, and, and do you see it here in the text? This counterintuitive truth. It's only when we die to the law that paradoxically, the morals and the ethics and the character of the law will be lived out, lived in and out through us. So we must die to the law in order for the, the character of the law to be realized in our lives and lived out through us. Now, let, let me illustrate this another way. Paul speaks of this, this reality again in Galatians chapter 5. And listen to how Paul says it in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, what Paul is saying is, you're not bound by the law because you've died to the law. And having died to the law, you're led by the Spirit. And so then we might ask Paul, well, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? What does it look like to die to the law and to be led and empowered by the Spirit? Just a few verses later in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, and that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7, right? Bearing fruit to God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, this is life in the Spirit. And then the very next thing Paul says when he describes the fruits of the Spirit, the very next thing he says, against such things there is no law. In other words, the law is not opposed to any of that. You can love and have joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as much as you want. The law is not opposed to any of that. But you don't live like that by the law. To live like that is to fulfill the law, but you don't live like that by the law. You live like that by dying to the law, by ceasing to look to the law for your salvation and your sanctification, and by belonging to Christ and trusting in the power of His Spirit to live in and through you. This is what Paul says about our relationship to the law. We must, in Christ, die to the law, not only as our hope for salvation, but also our hope for sanctification, 
so that we might belong to Christ, abide in Him, and know Him, and we might experience the power of His Spirit living in us and through us so that we bear fruit for God. Now, as we've looked at Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, what I want us to do just for a moment here as we come to the end of our message is I want us to step back and look more big picture. And what I want you to see here in Romans 7 through uh, verses 1 through 6 is that once again, as we've come from Romans chapter 6 now into chapter 7, once again, Paul presents us with a positive, hopeful, life-giving view of sanctification. And this is so important for us to see because I imagine there are many of us who feel like maybe we're just struggling deeply with sin and maybe even feel, feel at least like we're in bondage to sin. And Paul again and again and again and again in Romans 6 and now Romans 7 presents us with this positive, hopeful, life-giving view of sanctification. Now later in chapter 7, we are going to get to, and Paul's going to talk about this, the struggle, the battle that takes place in sanctification. So Paul has a realistic view of progress in the Christian life. But part of that realistic view is hope. It's not unrealistic to have a positive, hopeful, life-giving view of God's work in us as Christians in our progress of sanctification. That is part of the realistic view of being in Christ. I said uh, a few weeks ago that one of the books I've been reading or have read in preparation for this series is Whole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung, and it's one of the books I'll be giving away in our next members meeting. And chapter five of that book is one of the most encouraging things I've read on sanctification. It's entitled, The Pleasure of God and the Possibility of Godliness. And in Romans, when we were going through Romans chapter 6, I shared with you a number of verses that Kevin DeYoung points out in that chapter where we see in the Bible that we can live in such a way that pleases God. And there's a number of those passages, and we just kind of went through them. Later on in the chapter, though, DeYoung cites 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 5. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And some of you are familiar with this passage. Paul writes to them and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now there are many times, I think, where that passage is appealed to, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And kind of the sense is that, well, Paul is telling them to examine themselves because he's about to sock it to them, right? He's about to say, I want you to examine yourself, examine your life to see whether your life is representative of Christ and whether you are in Christ because I know you're not. Because I know if you examine yourself, you'll find yourself coming up short. You'll prove that you're not a Christian. Now there is a warning here in Paul's words. He does go on to say, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And and some of you may need that warning this morning. But it seems that that is not the stress of Paul's message here. 
it seems, in fact, that Paul, this church in Corinth, which was, had all kinds of issues, and Paul had been working with for some time, it seems that Paul has a much more hopeful prospect for the Christians in Corinth. He says, in fact, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or, do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Do you see the hope that Paul has for the church in Corinth? And what is Paul referring to there? He's referring to union with Christ, right? That's what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And he's writing to this congregation he's been ministering to, to Corinth. They've got all these issues. He says, listen, I've got hope for you. I'm your pastor. I've been watching you. I've been observing your life. We've been dealing with these different issues. You've been repenting and working through these different challenges. And I want to say to you, do you not realize who you are? Christ is in you. And my hope for you is that having been united to Christ in His death and in His resurrection, you belong to Him. And because you belong to Him, the law of God has been written on your heart. And because you belong to Him, you have been given His Spirit. So examine your life. And I trust that you will discover not perfection, but progress. Progress in your sanctification. Progress in you becoming more and more like Christ, which will in fact confirm that you are in Christ. My friends, the law can't save you. Only Christ can. If you've been looking to the law for salvation, it is a foolish endeavor. Trust in Christ. And if you are in Christ, know this, you belong to Him. So abide in Him. And know this. God's law has been written on your heart. So that by the power of His Holy Spirit, you might serve Him. Not in perfection, but with genuine progress. As you are conformed increasingly to the image of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You and praise You for the great hope that you have given us in Christ and in the gospel. And Lord, as we study your word and as we consider the words of the Apostle Paul, we are reminded of just how little we know and appreciate all the great riches that are ours in Christ. Lord, forgive us. And Lord, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to know and understand and appreciate with a new freshness all that you have granted to us in Jesus. We thank you that we belong to him. We thank you that you have written your law on our hearts. We thank you that you have granted to us your Holy Spirit. Help us to live by faith. And Lord, by the power of your Spirit and work in our lives, we pray that you would increasingly and continually conform us to the image of your Son. And it's in His name we pray.